0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more.
2: Hello and welcome to the world today. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of January. I'm Stephanie Smale, coming to you from the lands of the Turbal and Yugara people in Brisbane. <laughs> Today, more bad news about spiralling housing costs, with rents hitting a record high and economists warning there's no relief in sight. And what do you do if an internet map says your business is closed when it's not? Apparently, it's not an easy fix.
3: It's a significant downturn for, for one month. We've noted a, a downturn of around about $12,000 and the other places are... In this situation, it's a very serious situation, but, yeah, it needs to be looked at.
2: There's speculation that the federal government could give in to growing pressure and tweak its planned Stage 3 tax cuts. The cuts are designed to address bracket creep, where people pay more and more of their wages in tax but they're being criticised as unfair because the change is benefiting higher income earners more than lower earners. Rachel Hayter reports.
1: As cost-of-living stresses build, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is under pressure to provide more relief. Today, he's hinted more Australians will benefit from the federal government's planned Stage 3 tax cuts, telling Kyle Sanderlands on KISS FM the changes won't leave anyone out.
4: I support tax cuts and everyone will be getting a uh, a, a, a tax cut. Me too? Uh, Will I get one? uh, you, you you will always be looked after, Kyle, because I know that you're struggling.
1: The cuts are already legislated. They're due to come into effect on the 1st of July. And as they stand, people who earn between 45 dollars and $200,000 a year will be taxed at a flat rate of 30%. They're designed to address bracket creep, where income growth pushes wages into higher tax brackets. But there's been criticism the changes will mostly benefit people on higher incomes. Under the plan, a person who earns $200,000 a year would get a tax cut of $9,000. On the streets of Sydney, the views are mixed.
5: The poor old wage and salary earner pays a lot of tax. I think uh, the small business people tend to pay a lot less tax and uh, I think perhaps giving people who pay their taxes a bit of a break uh, is probably a good thing.
6: I don't think it's necessarily fair that higher income earners are going to benefit a lot more than lower and middle income earners. Um, and if the government decided to pivot on that, it might be appropriate
7: given the circumstances.
1: Nine thousand isn't really anything in the grand scheme of things if you're earning two hundred thousand a year. Nine News is reporting the government is now planning to lower the top tax bracket from two hundred to one hundred and eighty thousand dollars. Frontbencher Richard Miles says the government's position hasn't changed.
6: We are utterly concerned about easing the cost of living pressures on middle Australia. Um, and in every decision we continue to take,
5: that will remain our focus.
1: Independent Senator David Pocock wants the cuts redesigned.
5: People want governments to have integrity, but they also want them to respond to the challenges in front of them. And that's what these stage three tax cuts are. This is an opportunity to change the policy to be fit for the, the current economic environment. But
1: getting the changes through the parliament could prove tricky. Here's Nationals Minister Barnaby Joyce.
6: When you modify a promise, you're actually breaking a promise. You can't go to an election saying you're going to keep a promise and then come up with this word, I'm going to modify a promise.
1: There's also concern putting money back into people's pockets will fuel inflation. But partner and chief economist at Skyn Advisory, Amy Auster, believes the impact would be negligible.
2: As a counterfactual, if you like an example, we had the lower middle income tax offset expire in June of 2022. So that wasn't a tax cut, that was a rebate. That was up to 1500 bucks. that was going into people's accounts when they filed their tax. That expired, meaning that money kind of came out of their pocket in June 2022, after which we saw, and that should be anti-inflationary, but we saw inflation accelerate.
1: The Australia Institute's chief economist Greg Jericho points out, while addressing bracket creep is a worthy goal, just who is worst affected must be considered.
4: Let's say you're on 50,000. At the moment, only 5,000 of your dollars are taxed at 32.5% because that threshold starts at 45,000 so it's only the amount you earn from 45 to 50,000 gets taxed at that higher bracket. Let's say you get a nice little wage rise essentially to keep pace with inflation you go up to 60,000 well now you've got 15,000 of your dollars are being taxed at that high rate and that's a big percentage of your wage compared to someone say who's going from 100,000 to 110
2: Economist Greg Jericho ending Rachel Hayter's report. The cost of renting in Australia has reached an all-time high and economists are warning there's little relief in sight. New data shows the national median rent value is now more than $600 per week. It comes as new research shows over 40% of Australians on low incomes are in rental stress and at risk of being pushed into homelessness. David Taylor has more.
8: The median or middle rental value in Australia is now $601 per week, up from $437. In August 2020,
9: it's an extraordinary number. So, 601 bucks a week for the median dwelling of all houses and units in Australia.
8: That's research author Eliza Owen from CoreLogic. It means renters are now paying, on average, more than 31,000 dollars a year in rent, which is a new record high. It's
9: interesting to see Adelaide. For me, it's been transformed by the pandemic. But medium rents across the city are now actually matched with Melbourne, 565 dollars a week. That's a combination of Adelaide getting more expensive and Melbourne not seeing the same gains in prices over the past few years. But it's pretty unusual to see a city like Adelaide match one of the major East Coast hubs.
8: Forces squeezing the rental market include people moving out of share housing and going it alone, an increase in the population, and builders going bust or construction delays, reducing supply. But the rental market is not the same across the country.
9: Early on in the pandemic, we saw a lot of growth in regional rents because you had a surge in net migration from cities to regions. The past couple of years, though, have been all about the return in overseas migration. Overseas migrants are usually renters when they get here and they settle in cities.
8: The new data coincides with the report from the Productivity Commission showing an alarming surge in demand for homelessness services. The Commission's reporting a 23% jump in people exiting homelessness support and into rough sleeping. There was also an increase in the number of people, up to 9,140 people, who were rough sleeping before they came into a service. The CEO of Homelessness Australia, Kate Colvin, says each day 214 people come to homeless services seeking accommodation, but they're turned away.
0: We do see um, more and more people who are, are working, who come to homeless services. I mean, up and down the country we've got working families sleeping in tents because they, they just can't find a rental Um, and um, particularly over the summer period when a lot of temporary, um, where a lot of caravan parks or hotels that people who are homeless might ordinarily um, take some temporary refuge in a full, people end up with just absolutely nowhere to go and and sleeping in their car or, or in a tent.
8: But there is a silver lining, however faint, for those on low incomes who have found rental accommodation. While the annual growth in rents is higher than historic averages, it has broadly slowed.
9: So that sort of points you in the direction of of a bit of a downswing. And there are a handful of markets where rents have started to decline, but they are largely concentrated in regional Australia.
8: And as ANZ senior economist Adelaide Timbrell points out, Record levels of employment are also softening some of the burden of the soaring rental market.
7: We're
2: also expecting the unemployment rate to stay nice and low, which not only gives employees more bargaining power um, in employment situations, but also means that there's less likely to be disruptions in employment for a lot of people, which also provides people a little bit more security to save, whether that's for a home or just to have spare cash flow after paying that rental. ANZ Senior Economist Adelaide Timbrell ending David Taylor's report. A Russian cybercriminal has been named as the person responsible for the 2022 Medibank hack that affected 4 million Australians. And for the first time, the federal government will impose financial and travel restrictions in response. They're known as Magnitsky-style sanctions, but what sort of impact will they have? And will they work to stop future attacks? Elizabeth Cramsey reports. It's one of the worst cyber
0: attacks Australia has seen. Today, Foreign Minister Penny Wong announced who was responsible for the Medibank hack.
7: I can confirm that thanks to the hard work of the Australian Signals Directorate and the AFP, we have linked Russian citizen and cyber criminal Alexander Ermakov to the attack. 9.7
0: million Medibank customers had their personal details and sensitive private health information stolen in 2022, with most of it ending up on the dark web. The joint operation by Australia's cyber spy agency, the Australian Signals Directorate and the Australian Federal Police has resulted in the use of Magnitsky-style sanctions.
7: The sanctions imposed are targeted financial financial sanctions and a travel ban. This will mean it is a criminal offence punishable with up to 10 years imprisonment to provide assets to Ermakov or to use or deal with his assets, including through cryptocurrency wallets or ransomware payments. This is the first time Australia's autonomous cyber sanctions have been used. It sends a clear message that there are costs and consequences for targeting Australia and for targeting Australians.
0: But what is the Magnitsky Act? Bill Browder is the head of the global Magnitsky Justice Campaign.
7: The Magnitsky
4: Act is a piece of legislation named after my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, in Russia. Sergei Magnitsky uncovered a vast government corruption scheme, exposed it and in retaliation was arrested, tortured for 358 days and murdered in Russian police custody in 2009.
0: It allows governments to freeze assets and ban the visas of individuals involved in human rights violations and other crimes. Similar laws are already in place in the US, UK, Canada and the European Union.
4: Basically no bank in the world wants to do business with you. You can't even get a credit card. Very, almost impossible to get a visa in any country, and you become basically an international financial pariah, whether you're doing hacking from abroad or not. You can no longer go on vacation. You can no longer get medical care in a foreign country you can no longer send your family on trips.
0: Abigail Bradshaw is the head of the Australian Cyber Security Centre. She says Ermakov is a member of the REVIL hacking group and purely identifying him will provide huge disruptions for his activity. We know a lot about Mr Irmakov through our analysis and what we do know is that cyber criminals trade in anonymity. It is a, a, it is a selling quality and so naming Uh, and identifying with the confidence that we have from our technical analysis will most certainly do harm to Mr Ermakov's cyber business. But not everyone is convinced the laws will be an effective tool against cybercrime. Vanessa Teague is an adjunct professor in computer science at ANU. So even if we have this law in place that says it's illegal to pay this specific individual, you have no chance of knowing whether the criminal you're rewarding is that specific individual or not. So I think the practical difference, even in terms of Australians' paying that individual again or paying that individual at all is basically zero. She says more needs to be done to protect data in the first place, similar to data protection laws in Europe.
4: We're nowhere near that yet. There are proposals to
0: improve the Privacy Act, to really put the responsibility on people who hold other people's personal information to keep that personal information secure. And I think if we don't do that, then we're just going to keep seeing these kinds of attacks.
2: Vanessa Teague from ANU ending that report by Elizabeth Cramsey. Pressure is growing on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to secure the release of remaining hostages in Gaza. Their families have protested at Israel's parliament and the Prime Minister's own home, but he's not budging on a deal with Hamas. So, as the deadly Israel-Gaza war drags on, what will it take for Benjamin Netanyahu to find a compromise? The ABC's international affairs editor, John Lyons, joined me a short time ago. John, the desperation among the families of hostages is clear and the wider pressure on Prime Minister Netanyahu isn't going away. How much longer can he stick to his goal of total victory in Gaza?
6: Well Stephanie that pressure is ramping up all the time week by week day by day. It started soon after October 7, but the predominant aim of Benjamin Netanyahu at the time was basically to quote destroy Hamas close quote so that Hamas could never again commit the sort of atrocities they did on October the 7th. He said that the rescue of the hostages was also a dual aim, but it was clear when I was there that destroying Hamas was the number one aim. But as time has gone on now, three and a half months or so, the families have become more visible. They've stormed the Knesset, they're much more active, they're having more demonstrations across Israel in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv. And understandably, they are worrying and thinking that their relatives, many of them older people and children and babies, that as time goes on, there's more chance that their relatives are going to either die from sickness or be killed. In fact, there's 45 in there who need pretty specialist medication. So you can understand the hostage, the relatives of the hostages are being concerned and they are more and more angry and they're putting more and more pressure on Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu. Netanyahu.
2: What are the ongoing risks that Prime Minister Netanyahu is weighing up if he does make a deal with Hamas?
6: The main risk for him is political. Um, His coalition is propped up. He's kept in power by extremists, far-right members of Israeli politics, such as Itamar Ben-Gavir. They are extremists, and he is relying on them to keep those 64 seats. Now, were he to do a deal with Hamas, the right wing, the far-right wing, has said, that is not forgivable, we will abandon you if you do that. So he's in this position where he's under pressure from one side to get the hostages. He's got the far right telling him don't do anything. So what he's relying on is the United States, the French and Qatar to try to mediate any deals for medications to go in and possibly another hostage deal. I'm expecting in the next week or so, and the White House has been suggesting this in some of its statements, I'm expecting in the next week or so we'll, be, we'll see another major release of hostages as many as 30 or 40.
2: So what is likely to change in the next week to see that release of hostages? Is it that work, that diplomatic work happening in the background that will secure that?
6: Yes, it is the diplomatic work because with the US, Qatar and others doing the deals, it gives Benjamin Netanyahu a bit of that political cover. So he can say, listen, this is not me driving this. He can say to his far right-wing flank, this is not me doing these deals. This is what the United States wants. This is what Qatar wants. Uh, Recently, uh, Mossad, the intelligence service, was in Doha doing some of these deals. So it allows Benjamin Netanyahu to say, this is a deal presented to us. We will keep attacking Hamas, we'll keep attacking Gaza, but we'll try to get some of those hostages out. So he's trying to juggle these exquisitely uh, difficult decisions and pressures that are all coming at him at the same time.
2: The ABC's international affairs editor, John Lyons. On ABC Radio across Australia, streaming online and on the ABC Listen app, this is The World Today. Thanks for your company. Tropical cyclone Kirli is expected to be declared tonight or tomorrow morning as the huge low-pressure system moves closer to the north Queensland coast. It's predicted to make landfall on a Thursday night, with preparations underway for widespread severe impacts. But it's not just the cyclone authorities are bracing for – It's the flood risk in its wake. Rachel Mealy reports...
10: Queenslanders are waiting and watching.
0: We are still expecting this tropical cyclone to develop, most likely overnight tonight into early tomorrow morning. Now, we do still expect this system to continue intensifying as it approaches the coast, making landfall sometime late Thursday going into Friday morning.
10: The Weather Bureau's senior forecaster Miriam Bradbury says the cyclone could cross the coast between Innisfail and Airlie Beach. The current
0: forecast track map suggests that we may only see a Category 2 cyclone at Coastal Crossing. A severe Category 3 cyclone is still possible for the Coastal Crossing, but it's looking slightly more likely to be Cat 2 now. But needless to say, whether it's Cat 2 or Cat 3, we are still expecting those severe and widespread impacts for coastal communities.
10: Naomi McKinnon owns the Fat Frog Beach Cafe at Cannonvale near Early Beach. There's a sense of just being
2: prepared and there's certainly a sense of uncertainty because there is still a lot of uncertainty. So for most of my customers and then the people that are here as
10: visitors, I think they're just taking the appropriate precautions, making sure they've got everything they need to be ready and, and just sit and wait and see where it goes from there. After 25 years in the area, she says she feels ready for what's ahead. I think it's just um, trying to maintain a sense of calm and common sense. Queensland Premier Stephen Miles says it's not just the cyclone, but the rain that's likely to follow that has him worried.
5: The real challenge this, this time around is uh, the sheer amount of the state likely to experience the impacts of this tropical cyclone and then the tropical low that it's likely uh, to de-intensify, to weaken into uh, massive amounts of rainfall.
10: He says some of the disaster forecasting predicts up to a metre of rain will fall in the already saturated catchments down the Queensland coast.
5: Uh, We have pre-positioned emergency services there and we continue to look to the Bureau to guide us about where our emergency services should be. Uh, They've been stretched, though. They had a very busy December. We've done our best to give them fatigue leave. But uh, for Queensland households, the best thing you can do to make sure you don't put pressure on our volunteers and our SES is to make sure that you're ready.
10: The remote Indigenous community of Palm Island is in the Cyclone Watch Zone. Council Chief Executive Michael Bizzle says the Council has prepared plenty of generators and fuel in case heavy winds bring down power lines.
6: We need to be prepared to operate for a week or so without power, you know, therefore we need to do a lot of comms with community about preparedness and, and that's a big focus on making sure that there's water security and, and people have enough water stored and, and they've also got other things ready if if it does come as predicted reasonably close to us and those winds start pushing up north of 100 kilometres?
10: Apart from everything else, the possible cyclone could upend long weekend travel plans for many Queenslanders. Authorities say instead of camping this weekend, it's safer to stay close to home.
2: Rachel Mealy reporting. If you're searching for the opening hours of a restaurant, it's likely the first place you'll look is the map app on your phone. But restaurant owners say they have little control over the information shown on Apple and Google Maps. They say if the map says you're closed but you're not, fixing their error isn't easy. Angus Randall reports.
5: Sometime late last year, Chris Pyatt's Thai restaurant on Queensland's Sunshine Coast permanently closed, at least that's what Apple Maps thought.
3: One of our regular customers, he um, phoned me up and said, are you closed? I said, no, why? And he said, well, I, I was checking to see you know, what your hours were today and um, it's come up on that, that you're permanently closed. So I'm like, wow, we have to look into that.
5: He and his wife Pum have been running Pum's Kitchen in Maruchador for nearly a decade. And despite tourists flocking to the Sunshine Coast over summer, Chris Pyatt was having a quiet season.
3: We have no idea when this change went through, but we have seen a like sudden and drastic change in customer behaviour towards the end of November and all of December. Most people are going to uh just take it on trace value and look for another restaurant.
5: Now he knew about the problem, it should be an easy fix. Contact Apple and let it know Pum's is open for business. But it wasn't that simple.
3: It basically keeps saying that you know, for us to log in, you know, we're going to need an Apple ID, and for us to get that, I believe that we've got to have an Apple product. Even as a business, I can't even go in there and access the information that pertains to my business on the, Apple
5: systems. the ABC reached out to Apple last week, and the opening hours were fixed two hours later. But for Chris Pyatt, it won't bring back the lost income from customers craving Thai going elsewhere.
3: The business situation, this is a livelihood. We've noted a, a downturn of around about $12,000. How many other places are in this situation
5: Dr. Erica Mealy is a computer scientist at the University of the Sunshine Coast she says it's a common issue for small businesses
3: there's a lot of
11: it's been incorrectly reported my hours are incorrectly reported or my location's not right or my phone number's not right the challenge i think for everyone is there's no information that i could find about how they build the information for uh, Apple Maps.
5: Because these platforms collect data differently, Apple users may be getting different information to what's on Google. It's ultimately up to the business to keep across all these corners of the internet. And for customers, the old adage still applies, don't trust everything you see on the web.
11: The biggest thing I can suggest is for everybody who's listening, don't just take a single point of truth. So if I look up and see something's, you know, permanently closed on Google Maps, then perhaps actually look up and see if there's another website, see if they have their own page. Sometimes they have a Facebook page, those kinds of things, because unfortunately, these sort of almost community built or perhaps behind closed doors built maps, we don't really know how they've built that information. And without that transparency, there's no trust Dr Erica
2: Mealy from the University of the Sunshine Coast, Angus Randall and Bree Dwyer reporting. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Stephanie Smale.